On March 17th, in honor of uh, Patrick, the great Irish saint who chased all the snakes out of Ireland, who was the first to take the gospel to the Irish, uh, who um, was the one who decided to use the, the three-leaf clover to explain the Trinity and therefore explain the gospel to uh, the people there. Uh, in honor of St. Patrick, people all over the world, uh, wear green, drink green beer, pinch people who aren't wearing green, uh, dye rivers green, and uh, talk about shamrocks and leprechauns. Except uh, Patrick, who's not Irish, he was a Brit. Uh, he was never officially declared a saint by any church. He was not the first to take the gospel to Ireland. He did not drive snakes out of Ireland. There never were any snakes there. Uh, he is, well, there's no evidence that he used the clover to explain the Trinity. And there's a lot of suggestion that that didn't happen until about a thousand years after he was dead. Uh, and I suspect drinking green beer uh, and dying rivers green is just something people want to do. And so they go looking for an excuse to do it, uh, perhaps especially in Chicago. So I realize that this may be uh, surprising uh, to some of you. Um, some of you are shocked to hear that St. Patrick was real. <laughs> you thought he was sort of, uh, the whole thing was myth. He's like uh, Jack Frost or the Easter Bunny. Um, the, the, the leprechaun thing sort of threw you off. Others of you are shocked, uh, perhaps a little traumatized here that he wasn't Irish or um, a saint or that he wasn't the first to take the gospel to Ireland uh, or that he didn't get rid of the snakes. So, um, hang in there. There's some reasons for the confusion. I'm going to explain this in a moment. And on top of that, I'm toying with you a little bit. Um, Patrick was a real person and uh, he's worth knowing about. He's actually, the, the reality is better than the myth in so many ways. I, I, there's a reason why I'm, I'm choosing to talk about Patrick in the context of 100 very significant events. Um, it's true that he wasn't Irish, he was British, but he spent a lot of time in Ireland. Uh, where I'm messing with you is saying that he wasn't a saint, that he wasn't, you know, there's no record of him being officially canonized by uh, the Roman Catholic Church. And that's because uh, he was recognized as a saint before that canonization process was adopted. He actually also has a, sort of an elevated status uh, in the worlds of the Anglicans, the Orthodox, and the Lutherans. Uh, evangelicals don't have saints, uh, I guess, exception of, you know, Billy Graham. Um, as an aside, the New Testament uses the word saint to refer to somebody that has come to faith in Christ. And so Paul will often write to the saints in, you know, this, this city or that city. Uh, that's because everybody that has made a decision for Christ is deemed to be a saint based on the work of Christ. But I, that's, a, that's a tangent. I'm not going to run down. Uh, even those of us who do not use the word saint for somebody like Patrick uh, should see that St. Patrick is a hero. He's, he's a, an interesting guy, and there's much to learn from him. So, let me set the context here. Uh, we have been moving through the post-Nicene period and into the early Middle Ages, um, what was previously called the Dark Ages, but that's fallen out of vogue. Uh, a couple sessions ago, I did something on Western civilization, and I talked about the fact that this is sort of a, a marriage of Hebrew prophets, Greek philosophers, and Roman soldiers, and then they weave together, and, and we've got this Roman Empire that is going to last for a thousand years, like, you know, five times longer than the British Empire and the United States 
empire uh, has been around. For, for a thousand years, Rome is large and in charge, and out of that, all kinds of ideas and reason and, and revelation and rule of law and all these things are going to emerge. Uh, that collapses, this is what we were looking at, the sack of Rome, that collapses in the 5th century when the barbarians are at the gates. Uh, I hope, again, I hope that as, as, we, as I keep reviewing that some of the big flow of Western history and of Christian history begins to stick. But Alaric the Hun is the guy that leads the barbarians uh, to sack Rome, and that happens in the early 5th century. And uh, anyway, Rome's fall is the transition point between the, the post-Nicene period and the Middle Ages. And the Middle Ages is going to be another thousand-year run. Um, it's also called Christendom. Lots of good things happen there. Uh, people tend to only think of, you know, the Black Plague and the Inquisition and, uh, and the Crusades and things like that. Uh, actually, a lot of good things happen during that period. Um, and it's a thousand-year period. And so scholars break it into three sections. The early, sometimes referred to as Dark Ages, the middle uh, Middle Ages, and then the late Middle Ages. And the late Middle Ages is going to lead into um, the Renaissance, which is followed by the Reformation. And then that's followed by the Enlightenment, which leads us into modernity. And then 20, 20th century at some point begins to transition into post-modernity, which is sort of what we're living in right now. Um, and so I share all that to, to say uh, St. Patrick uh, actually is considered a pretty important figure in Western civilization, which I am going to explain in a minute. So in the most recent podcast, we were looking at the Council of Chalcedon, which uh, happened in 451, and it happened, this is where the humanity of Christ is cemented. The earlier councils have been focused on his full deity, and then in Chalcedon, uh, we get really the hypostatic union, that he's both fully God and fully man. So that Council of Chalcedon is 451. So just as a reference point, Patrick dies on March 17th. That's why that's St. Patrick's Day, March 17th, 461. So we're, we're not really moving forward much as we come into this uh, podcast 15, podcast 14, the 14th event of these 100 that we're looking at. Uh, it was uh, 451. St. Patrick is born in 378, but he dies in 461. So with that as backdrop, let me give you the context of his life and then explain why it's so significant. So Patrick is born in Britain in 378 to wealthy Christian parents. His grandfather had been a pastor. His father is a tax collector for Rome, uh, also a deacon in the church. Uh, at this time, Britain is part of the Roman Empire. Um, Ireland is not. Ireland is sort of wild. Ireland is untamed. And in 400, uh, at the age of 16, Patrick is kidnapped by pirates. Um, not just pirates. There's a, like a thousand people that are, that are captured in this raid and are taken back uh, to Ireland and sold as slaves. So um, descriptions of Ireland at this point are not the kind of things that would make it onto a travel brochure by any means. One piece I read uh, said it was a, quote, brooding, dank island full of druids and other pagans, all of whom 
were far more likely to pick up a sword than to pick up a book. Uh, so Patrick had had this privileged childhood, wealthy parents. He's being educated not just uh, as, a, as a Brit. He's being educated as a Roman citizen. He's learning Latin. Uh, and and his, his parents have some money. So he's got this nice life. And now he's captured and he's made to be a slave uh, on this dark, uneducated, pagan land. And he's going to serve as a slave in Ireland for six years before he will escape. So here's some things that we, you need to understand. Before he was kidnapped, he was not very interested in the faith of his parents. Um, indeed, in one of his writings, so at the end of his life, we, he writes a couple, a couple letters that, that survive. And I link to one of them in the email that accompanies this confessio. Uh, and in Confessio, he recounts his life uh, and talks uh, about a lot of things. It's very helpful. It's insight into who he is. It's insight into that period of time. Not many things, obviously, have survived from, um, you know, from the 5th century. But uh, in this, he writes about a big sin, mistake, something treacherous that he does uh, when he's about 15. We, we don't know what it is. You can speculate all you want. Uh, lots of people do. Um, the, the leading theory is it's some sort of sexual sin, but it could have been a bunch of other kinds of things. Uh, and this, uh, he is going to believe that he's kidnapped in part uh, out of um, punishment for this sin. Now, I would, I would push back on that. I don't think that God punishes us in the way that he was thinking of punishment. And, and Patrick will later see you know, uh, the blessings of him being kidnapped and all the things that are going to happen in his life. But, um, but when he gets to this island with the Druids, so pagans, and, you know, pagan is a sort of a pejorative term right now, but they were sort of pagans. They were, they were, they worshiped nature. They believe in spirits of, in gods and, and all these kind of, uh, you know, the spirit of the tree and the woods, and you're fighting against darkness and forces of, from the underground and all this kind of stuff. And there's some human sacrifice and other things. It may not been, have been as bad as it gets described, and I'm going to explain why we think that maybe things are, are not as clear as some people think they are. But uh, it's, it's hard. He goes from a privileged life in part of the Roman Empire, this developed area, to uh, being a slave, and he's a shepherd, and so that's just a boring job. Uh, I've watched shepherds in the Middle East and other places, and you know, sheep are just, they're not, not a lot to do there. Uh, and so he is, uh, he is gonna be a shepherd. It's a difficult time. He is going to embrace the faith of his parents. He is going to come to faith in Christ. He's gonna have lots of time to pray. In his journals, he'll say he's praying up to 100 times a day. And he becomes quite spiritual. He begins to uh, have a sense of hearing God in his prayers. And he has a number of dreams or visions or other things that are going to shape him. So after six years of being, uh, 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 you know, he, I mean, he learns the Celtic language, the Celtic culture. He learns all the stuff that's going on in Ireland. After six years, he has a, um, uh, hears God's voice. And this is in the year 407, telling him to escape. So he flees, and he has to go uh, 200 miles, so sort of through the, the, the wilderness. He goes 200 miles uh, and is able to talk his way onto a boat of pirates um, that is going to go back to Europe. 
And it appears that, that they go to France and that he is going to stay in a monastery. There, it's, there's a lot of contention here about where they go and whether or not, uh, how long he stays in France. Eventually, he makes his way back home. He's been gone for seven years, six, seven years. And you can imagine, I mean, there's no you know, telling his parents that he's alive. Uh, he shows back up, and it's a great homecoming, and everybody's thrilled that he's there. And he's there for a while before he senses that he is supposed to return to Ireland. Now, it's again, the timing on this, it's, it's hard to tell. Um, he will go for education. He will go to train and to become a monk, uh, and he will study the Bible. And some say that he does this in France. Some say that he does this in England. It's... it's uh, I sure don't know, but um, he will be um, um, a monk for some time, and he will sort of do his internship back home. Uh, he'll get involved in, in the fights with, against the Pelagians, which is a group that we haven't talked about, but uh, Augustine is going to do battle against Pelagius, and Pelagius is this British um, cleric who, when Rome collapses, goes down to North Africa, flees the, the barbarians and ends up in North Africa uh, in Hippo, where uh, Augustine is the bishop and is preaching. And, and Pelagius doesn't think much of the, uh, uh, of the spirituality of the people in the church that uh, Augustine is leading. He thinks they're too lax and that Augustine is way too much about grace and that he needs to call people to a life of asceticism and that Jesus isn't a savior. He is He's an example, and that we all can become perfect if we'll just be disciplined enough. So Augustine, who again is sort of this um, advocate of grace, Augustine and Pelagius go at it. And eventually Pelagius is declared a heretic and gets chased away. But uh, uh, we're going to see that there's a little bit of overlap there, um, and indeed a little bit of overlap between uh, St. Patrick and the, the battles with the Pelagians. Eventually, he is commissioned, um, some say by the Pope. Um, it's probably not the case for all kinds of reasons, but he, uh, he is sent to Ireland, and apparently, uh, as he is being sent, he um, is commissioned as a bishop. So uh, this is about 4.30. Um, again, we're, you know, we're, we're trying to connect some dots here. Uh, this has been quite a while, so we're not sure when he feels the call of God to go back to Ireland. And there seems to be more dreams involved in which he, he hears from the Irish people that they want him to come back. And uh, the babies in Ireland are calling out to him, and God is sending him. And so uh, eventually, to the real frustration of his family, he heads back to minister to the people who had, uh, who had made him a slave. And uh, once he's there, he does not have an easy time of it. He's going back, uh, again, from a privileged, privileged life. He goes back home. And, uh, and you know, Rome is starting to decline, but his parents still have money. And, and uh, so he's had a privileged life back in, in, uh, in Britain. But uh, now he goes back to this pagan island. And... Uh, uh, this time I'm reading about Ireland at this point, and one person says that it's uh, an illiterate, aristocratic, semi-nomadic, Iron Age warrior culture, <laughs> wealth based on slavery. Uh, from his own writings, it, be, it, is, it is clear that he does not like it. And uh, 
He feels constantly under threat. He's captured 12 times by the Druids. He's able to talk his way out of it. it he appears to be pretty insecure. It, it, you know, we want to sort of read back into it. It looks like he's probably frequently depressed. But now I'm going to let you in on a little um, wrinkle in all of this. So 200 years after St. Patrick's death in the 7th century, the Vikings are going to come and they're going to they're going to pillage the land, uh, and the and but the church is going to have grown and spread throughout the island, throughout the island, and uh, there's going to be lots of different churches, and churches are vying for um, some of the seats of power in the church. I wish these kinds of things weren't part of our story, part of the story of the of the of the church, but they are, and so there are um, again. This seems to be what happened in an effort to sort of win influence for certain churches in certain areas. There's some that claim St. Patrick came to them. And in an effort to sort of generate a mystique and aura and unify all the churches under them, uh, there, there's a couple guys that get commissioned to write about St. Patrick, and they really ramp up his accomplishments. And um, so they say that, you know, he plants hundreds of churches and he does this and he, you know, spends weeks and weeks uh, at a time fasting and praying and he's got supernatural power and everybody is, you know, in awe of St. Patrick. And um, so thankfully, fortunately, in God's providence, we have what St. Patrick wrote <laughs> about his life. But uh, there's still it, there's still places where we're trying to figure out and parse what happened and what didn't happen. Um, so there are reasons to think um, perhaps the accounts that he offers of his life about how bad it is are a little bit overstated, uh, and that part of the reason it was so bad and so hard for him as a slave is because he's coming out of money. And so it's just such a dramatic uh, downsizing of wealth and influence. And that slavery in, um, in, in Ireland at the time was not as bad, say, as slavery. Uh, chattel slavery might have been in the United States in the Deep South back in the, uh, you know, in the 16, 1700s. But um, he doesn't like it. It's clear he didn't like it when he was a slave. And it's clear he doesn't really like it when he goes back. And it's hard. And uh, the people don't accept him. But uh, he, he goes back, and God, God has prepared him. One of the things to see with St. Patrick, God prepared him. He is now uniquely positioned. He understands the culture. He knows the language. He goes, he determines he's not going to just preach to anybody. He's initially going to go to the leaders. He's going to go to the Druid priests. He's going to go to some of these chieftains, believing that if they'll come to faith, other people will come to faith. And this is a missiological principle, and in fact, it happens. So lots of people will come to faith uh, under St. Patrick, and, uh, and he will serve there for, um, for decades. And what was uh, a pagan land when he goes there? Um, tens of thousands of people will be baptized. They'll be converted. And um, within a century, what was pagan is going to be uh, predominantly Christian and possessing uh, such a vigorous faith that it is going to uh, have Ireland sending missionaries out to Scotland and England and France uh, as, as Europe is plunging into the Dark Ages. And this is important. So 
one of the reasons why I, I selected Patrick to be somebody to, to profile is it, it's important because uh, the gospel spreads in Ireland right at the time that Rome is cratering. And uh, because of Patrick's influence there, Ireland is going to be uniquely positioned to help Europe emerge out of the Dark Ages, to help the church spread. So next, in our next session, we're going to look at St. Benedict and these Benedictine monasteries that are going to be spread throughout Ireland and that are going to be these epicenters of health. And um, perhaps 10 years ago or so, uh, Thomas Cahill had a book out called How the Irish Save Civilization. And um, he makes this argument that these monastic communities that are established by uh, the Bene in, in the Benedictine order. So St. Benedict is going to help establish these communities. So as Europe is plunging into the Dark Ages, the barbarians are taking over, the libraries are going away, the books are being burned, all the bad stuff is happening. Uh, the monks are going to go out into the to Ireland initially. They're going to establish these monasteries. They're going to be centers of learning. They're going to be centers of health. They're going to be centers of grace and trade. And they will sort of build up and, and because they're, of their interest in learning, they will have all the great works of Western literature. Um, and so then when Europe is cratering, these, these missionaries from these Benedictine monasteries will go back into, uh, into the mainland of Europe and will uh, bring the gospel and will bring literacy and bring books and all these things. So... Look, you should know, most people, Cahill's not a, not a scholar, um, and most people think that uh, in his series of books that he just overstates things. Um, popularizers of uh, any field, any academic field, tend to get beat up um, by the academics. The academics say, ah, oh, you're simplifying it too much. And indeed, that's part of what you have to do in order to, in order to tell the story in a way that that uh, those who are not trained in that discipline can uh, can follow or even have any interest in following. So most people seem to think that Cahill overstates the story and simplifies the thesis a little bit too much. But we'll pick up on some of that next time when we look at um, St. Benedict, who is who's up next. But this is this is all contemporary stuff because Rod Dreher, who's uh, I've mentioned before, he he's got the Benedict option out right now suggesting that just as Rome collapsed and the Benedictine monks went out to build these islands of health and 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 uh, to be ready once the Dark Ages set in to be able to re-Christianize the land, that, that that's what Christians should be doing today. So you might have heard about all this. And then there's the popularity of Celtic spirituality right now. So the Celts included the Irish and some others, and there's just uh, Celtic language and Celtic art and Celtic music and other things. So um, some of this will come back up. But a few other St. Patrick stories to wrap this up. Um, it's said that one of the ways that he won over Ireland was by sleeping. Um, interesting. And perhaps interesting now when uh, uh, we're having 2020 and so many things are going wrong. But uh, uh, the report was that uh, Patrick slept soundly and soberly. And most of the people there could not speak, uh, could not sleep soberly. Uh, this Druid culture and this, this sort of uh, warring factions, people were always a little bit on edge. And so they tended, to, uh, they tended to drink themselves to sleep. And Patrick did not. And that impressed them. 
Uh, it's claimed that he is the first human uh, in history of the world to speak out unequivocally against slavery. And um, he is he's going to be credited with a certain kind of monastic living uh, because um, the gospel comes to Ireland without there being martyrs. Um, now, you will find St. Patrick's name listed in books of martyrs sometimes because he describes how hard it was for him. <laughs> and so some people say that is so hard, even though he didn't die, he deserves to be a martyr. Again, perhaps he overstated that a little bit, but uh, martyrdom actually can be helpful in some areas where you look at the, the price other people are willing to pay. And so in Ireland, there's a, there's sort of a, um, a green martyrdom where people didn't die, but they would go out and live very subsistence level living and, and they'd go out there to pray and to be away from things. Again, it's not the desert like the desert fathers in the Middle East because we're in Ireland. Good grief, it's lush and it's um, very different. But they would go out and pray and they would be sort of spiritual guides for other people. So, um, finally, uh, I linked to this uh, Confessio that you can get online and read it if you want to read uh, what he wrote. There is also a movie that just came out in 2020. I've not seen it, but it's on St. Patrick. Uh, and um, so I can't recommend it other than it looks like it's sort of a movie documentary. And uh, probably it's at least interesting, even if it's not true. Uh, welcome to trying to do history. We're always trying to figure out what actually happened. But I think St. Patrick is somebody that can encourage us, can see how God used somebody, can see somebody being called to go back to some, a painful episode in their life, kidnapped, and to go back with the love of God and to say, I want to bring the gospel to these people who, who yes, who they did kidnap me and treated me horribly, but they didn't understand. And, um, and we need to be that kind of person of grace. So, um, Happy St. Patrick's Day early. Um, everybody ought to go down and see the river turn green once. Uh, I did. And uh, fascinating. And uh, St. Patrick is somebody to be encouraged by. So um, March 17th comes once a year. Um, again, uh, happy St. Patrick's Day.